Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your presence. We thank You that You are here and that You want to speak to us. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit. Pray that You'd guide my lips, that You would open our ears, that You would shape our hearts even this morning as we listen for Your voice. Pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Perhaps some of you already know this, and it won't seem so incredibly cool to you, but uh, some of you might be familiar with, well, chips, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm actually not a big chip guy generally, but there are some that are really good, like sour cream and bacon are pretty amazing, right? Well, so James won't be fighting anyone for these later. So anyways, this Christmas, Sorry, you can't open it and not have a couple. I shouldn't talk with my mouth full, right? This Christmas, I think it was, Calvin and his wife, my daughter-in-law, Hannah, came home, and they had this cool way to close a chip bag. How many of you have ever had that problem? You eat half a bag of chips or maybe three-quarters of a bag of chips, and you need to close it, and the closest chip clip is like upstairs and you're like I gotta get up and go get that anyone had that problem some of us or you just go I'm just gonna eat the rest of the bag but if you're if you're not gonna eat the rest of the bag and you need to close it and you know you always need something to, to clip it right to keep them fresh well Calvin and Hannah came and they had this new I think you'd call it a hack this way to, to fold the bag and seal it without anything and it's, it was super cool and, and I think you're supposed to do the corners and then fold it over, and then tuck something in. You know that? I haven't learned it yet. But, but my wife has. And so I, I need to actually watch her. I need to, to learn from her, because she knows how to do that, and otherwise these chips will go bad, which wouldn't be good. So maybe I'll ask you to, to do that for us, if you could. Thank you. You don't have to demonstrate for everyone. You can just sit down and, and do it. You, you can. <laughs> One fold. Okay, now I'm not going to have an excuse for not knowing this. Two fold. Turn it around. Fold it down. And flip it over. There we go. So, so I've seen it done a lot of times. I still haven't figured out exactly how to do that. I'll leave those there for someone later. Um, what's my point? My, 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 point, my point is, I, I need to watch what she's doing when she does this. I, I need to learn from her. I need to follow her example. I need to stick with her if I want to grow into someone who doesn't need a chip clip, someone who, who can do this, and, and, and other things for sure. This morning, as we return to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, what we're going to hear Paul saying, what we're going to hear Paul urging us to do is to stick together, to watch one another, to learn from one another. Uh, that, that sticking together with other believers, that following the example of others who are moving in the direction that you are wanting to move, keeping your eyes fixed and focused on others who are walking in the direction that God is calling all of us to walk. That we, we will be confronted this morning with the truth that a vital part of Christian discipleship, a vital part of, of growing 
as believers in Christ is sticking together with believers. Uh, together we are helped. We learn. We grow. We avoid pitfalls. Together we are helped. Our behaviors are shaped. Our lives are transformed in community as we stick together. Paul is uh, writing to a church that he planted about 12 years before he writes this letter. Uh, if you've been with us, you'll remember Paul is writing it from a prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. And he's writing to this church uh, primarily around two issues. Uh, one, internally there is some relational strife. Not all is well within the church. And then externally they're experiencing opposition, which is leading to suffering. And so he writes with those two things uh, in mind to address those. In the last part of the letter that we looked at, do you remember uh, what happened two weeks ago? I wasn't with you last week. Uh, Paul was sharing autobiographically. Earlier he'd shared how uh, he shared about his religious pedigree, uh, how he'd been born a Hebrew of Hebrews and been circumcised on the eighth day, everything, right? Those things that had been sort of done to him, those things that were nothing related to him doing something. And then he shared about his religious performance, that he was a Pharisee, that he was deeply concerned about obedience and holiness and had been zealous for God even persecuting the church. He'd shared that earlier in chapter 3. And the last time we were together, we've heard him talk about how that religious pedigree and performance, he's counted as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He considers all those things that he used to value as garbage because now through God's gift of righteousness, he is found in Christ. Now, why does he see those things from his past as having no value? Well, because those things do nothing to make him right with God. His own religious performance, his religious pedigree doesn't count because they, they don't help him grow. He counts them as garbage, he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul has come to know Jesus. He's come to, to receive uh, Christ's love, his grace. He's entered into a relationship with him, not on the basis of Paul's own performance, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Christ's death for him on the cross, Christ's gift of righteousness. Uh, Paul says it's righteousness received from God on the basis of, of God's grace. So here's the gospel. If you're with us this morning and, and you're not a Christian, maybe you're unfamiliar with Christianity, I want to start here just, uh, just showing, explaining the good news. Gospel literally means good news. So this is the good news, that, that Christianity... A life of faith in Jesus is not about cleaning ourselves up. It's not about making ourselves acceptable to God. Christianity is about the love of God for sinful, rebellious people among whom we are all counted. We have all been created by God to live in relationship with Him, but every one of us, the Bible tells us, has rejected God's rule, His authority. We've thumbed our noses at Him. We've said, I'll do it my way, thank you very much. And because of our rebellion, we all stand under His judgment, as God is holy and we deserve His judgment. But God loves us. And so God doesn't leave us in that place under uh, His judgment. God in His love sent His Son Jesus to earth to live the life of obedience that we were called to live but failed to live. And then Jesus willingly went to the cross. Jesus was crucified on a cross. He paid the penalty for my sin and for the sin of everyone who puts their faith in Christ. He, he paid for all our sins so that if we trust in Him, we are forgiven 
We are washed, we are cleansed, but not just that. We are also clothed with his perfect righteousness. That's what Paul's talked about earlier in chapter 3. This righteousness received from God. So Christianity is about recognizing that our only hope is Jesus. Their only hope is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, all my, my religious obedience, my performance for you, all my attempts to clean myself up, all my attempts to live a good life for the sake of being accepted, I count those as rubbish because those don't do anything to make things right. I come to you recognizing that I'm spiritually bankrupt, that you alone are my only hope. That through trusting in you, I'm forgiven. That trusting in you, I'm clothed with righteousness. Through trusting in Jesus, I I am adopted as your daughter or your son and brought into that relationship. Paul knows that. Paul knows Jesus now. He's in relationship with Jesus. He has absolutely fallen in love with Christ. Overwhelmed by the beauty of God's love for him, his grace for him, his work of redemption. And so Paul, who writes this letter, he knows that there is nothing greater. There is nothing greater than knowing Christ. It is of surpassing worth. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks here, you know that Paul Paul already knows Christ. We can already know Christ in this world, in this life. We can experience the resurrection power, the same power that brought Christ back to life uh, resides in us, is what Scripture tells us. So we can know the resurrection power of God. The Christian life isn't the life we live by our own striving. It's, it's, we're filled by the Spirit. The power of God works in us. And Paul also knows, and he's talked about how he suffers as a Christian. He suffers because of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. And even that suffering, Paul has said, as he suffers for Christ, he is conformed into the image of Christ. That is when we, when we suffer uh, opposition persecution, whatever difficulties we suffer uh, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, Christ uses those to shape us into men and women who reflect Christ's likeness increasingly. And so Paul has shared those things. He knows Christ now, but Paul also understands this, and this drives him, that one day he will know Christ in a way that right now he doesn't know. One day he will stand before Christ in the the very real presence of Christ. When when Christ returns, when human history is wrapped up, Paul will know Christ fully. And that drives him. He is filled with passion. And remember the last part of his autobiographical story, his telling of his story, he spoke, he used the metaphor, remember, of a race. He said, I press on, I forget what's behind, I strain towards the goal for the prize to which I'm called. The prize, of course, is Christ, called heavenward. And so he is in pursuit of Jesus. He's in pursuit of of what he knows lies in the future, his sure future in Christ's presence at the end of history. So he presses on, forgetting what's behind, straining forward, his eyes fixed on Jesus, and the future that awaits him. That is what immediately precedes the the verses we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to look at Philippians 3. We're going to pick things up at verse 15 immediately after uh, Paul speaking of this race. Philippians 3, 15. uh, We'll stop at 19 this morning. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. 
And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. I want to, this morning, I want to ask three questions with you. How are we to think? Where are we to look? And what does this mean for us? How are we to think? Where are we to look? And what does this mean for us today. So question one, how are we to think? Paul has been, through much of chapter three, been speaking autobiographically. That is, he's been recounting his story. And he's not done that simply to fill space. Paul has a point. There's a reason he's sharing his story. His story of his religious pedigree and his his religious performance as a Pharisee. Uh, There's a reason why he, he has told them that he sees that all as garbage. There's a reason why he's told them that he is pursuing Christ, knowing Christ more fully. His eyes are fixed on eternity that awaits him, where he will know Christ fully. There's a reason why he's been sharing his own story. And that is, he, he wants to apply his story to their lives. And that's what he turns to do here in verse 15. He has just been explaining his wholehearted, zealous pursuit of Christ. And, and, and everything else. And so now the reality is that the surpassing worth of knowing Christ uh, is what is at the very center of his life. It's what he's aimed at. And Paul now thinks very differently than he used to think when he was a Pharisee. He thinks very differently now than before he came to Christ. And here Paul is urging the Philippians to think in the same way that he thinks, to have his same mindset. We encountered that same language earlier in chapter 2 where Paul told the Philippians to have the same mindset as Christ. And that was in regards to the inner turmoil. Remember, there's there's inner tension, relational strife in the church. And he points to Jesus in the story of Jesus and says, we were to have the mindset of Christ who humbled himself, who left glory and became a slave to serve others out of love for others. That that mindset was to, to shape them. Here he's saying, I want you to have my mindset He says this in verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, this is how you're to think. You're to think like me, says Paul. You you are to count all things loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That is, all the things that you have valued, whether you've valued your religious past, whether you've valued your religious performance, whether it's other things in this world that you value, that you have seen as supreme, that you've lived for. And the Bible tells us that all of us are idolaters. That is, all of us, uh, we, we tend to pursue and love and worship something other than God. That's, that's at the very root of our sin. Idolatry is, is putting, looking to something, uh, something created as an ultimate thing, worshiping anything other than God. And so we're, we're all guilty of that. And so here Paul calls us, to count all things a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I want you to think like me, he says. Have my mindset. He's just been telling them what his mindset is. All those things that he valued are garbage, dung, 
And he pursues wholeheartedly knowing Christ. You are to see, you are to understand, he says, that knowing Christ is greater. Greater than anything else. Even in the face of suffering. Remember, the, the Philippians are facing opposition. They, they find themselves, the, the city of Philippi, I've shared this before, the city of Philippi is a unique place. It was a, a, a colony of Rome. It had been given very special status. And so Philippi was a place very loyal to Rome, very pro-Rome. And, and in fact, every time they got together for social occasions or for civic events of whatever kind, they would have, they would have, uh, they would have ascribed... Uh, honor to Caesar by saying Caesar is Lord. Caesar is kurios. That would have been a normal thing. In fact, all these believers would have been right a part of that until they came to know Christ. And now that they know Christ, they know that, no, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. There's only one Lord. And so that's likely at the very heart of the opposition that they're experiencing, the suffering that they're experiencing. And, and so Paul wants them to know that that pursuing Christ, knowing Christ, is of surpassing worth even if it means suffering. And they can even, in the face of that, they can rejoice. And remember, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. Paul is writing this as he waits to stand trial before Caesar, not knowing for sure what the outcome will be. And so, you, you might remember earlier in Philippians, he, he told the Philippians, he reminded them that they know that he himself is suffering. So he's not saying this from a place of where everything is good for him. In Philippians 1, uh, 30, he said this, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he's reminding the Philippians that he too is suffering for the gospel. He too is suffering for Christ. But even in the face of that suffering, knowing Christ is of surpassing value. There is nothing greater. It's worth any cost. Everything else is but rubbish. Now Paul's story, his narrative provides for them, provides for us a template of how they were to think, how we are to think. We are to think, they are to think as Paul did. They are to think in line with the thinking exemplified in his life and his story where everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, it's important and of value for us to, to note the fact that Paul is not only concerned about how the Philippians think, for Paul, right thinking leads to right living. He cares about how the Philippians conduct themselves as, as believers, how they live. Look with me at verse 16. He says this, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul wants the Philippians to think right, to think like him, to have their eyes on Christ, to understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, so that they live as they should, they live in a way congruent with the good news, congruent with their identity in Christ, congruent with the fact that their future is certain in Christ and that they have a glorious future that is awaiting them and that they are pursuing Christ. Live in light of that. Live in light of the fact that, that we are running hard for Jesus, forgetting everything else. Live that way. And you need to think like me if you're going to live that way. Remember their, their circumstances of external opposition in Philippi? and also internal strife within the body, Paul knows that if they think like he does, if they adopt his mindset that they will willingly, even with joy, suffer for Christ, and he knows that they will not be sidetracked by squabbles that are rooted in pride and selfish ambition. But the reason he is writing this 
is because their circumstances have caused some to lose their focus on Jesus, to lose their focus on the one who's crucified, risen, and coming again. And so Paul calls them back to this. Think like me. Have your eyes fixed on Jesus. Run this way with all zeal and passion to know Christ because it is of surpassing worth. Now before we move on to our second question, I should quickly address uh, one other thing. Paul shares an interesting qualification. It's kind of curious, the end of verse 15. There we read, uh, I'll read verse 15. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. What's that all about? What's Paul meaning? I don't know if some of you maybe are familiar with the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Um, but if you, if you are, I'll, I'll use it in this example. I'll explain something. If you read 1 Corinthians, one thing that becomes clear is that there is some, um, some tension between Paul and the believers he's writing to. Uh, they're taking issue with some of what Paul has said. And there's, there's kind of this, this argument, if you will, this opposition in the letter. And, and Paul is tackling them and challenging them. You, you pick that tone up as you read 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us through our study of the letter uh, of the flip, to the Philippians, you'll notice that the tone is radically different, right? Remember, Paul planted this church. He knows these believers. He loves them. They know him. They love him. There's this personal relationship. So there's this, this great sense of, of deep friendship as you read this letter. And, and that's important to note because I would, would suggest that here there's no sense of opposition. There's no sense of disagreement between the Philippians and Paul. And, and that's important as we try and understand this. Paul has been addressing them as their friend. In fact, he's avoided in this letter talking about, hey, I'm, I'm an apostle. He's avoided any language of, of, that, would, that would address them as inferiors from a superior. He, he's, he's not gone that way. There's this tone of, of friendship and gentleness. And so here he, he's, not, he's not issuing a command so much like you need to do this, but he is really at the same time exhorting them as his friends to think like he does. Now, nonetheless, he, he, he doesn't assume that they will all necessarily see everything this, the way he does, but he trusts that where that is the case, God will guide them, that God will continue his work in them and reveal those things to him, to them. And so there's this gentleness saying, hey, if, if, if there's areas of disagreement, I trust that God will show you the truth. But whatever those things are, and I think Paul's just making this general statement. I, I don't think there's some specific area where there's there's tension. He's just saying, hey, where, where, where there might be disagreements, that's fine. God will show that. But in this one thing, this is not an area that's open to negotiation. This mindset fixed on Christ, fixed on pursuing Christ, the prize, uh, there, there can be no disagreement. There, they can't disagree about that, that, that the Christian life, a life of discipleship, is a life that is shaped by the cross. That is, Christ died for us. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We follow a crucified and risen king. And so over the last few weeks, we've recognized that, that the Christian life is the life that is cruciformed. It's, it's formed, it's shaped by the cross. And so that's not something that's negotiable. Paul has been firm on that, that our lives as Christians, we will suffer on behalf of Christ in the gospel. We will suffer as we live cruciformed lives. And and it, he won't debate this fact that the Christian life, a life of discipleship, is a life of vigorously pursuing the heavenly prize, knowing Christ in fullness. And so whatever else Paul might be getting at, that these things that he has been 
proclaiming through all of chapter 3 up to this point are they're, they're not debatable matters. These are not the things he's talking about. He's saying, if there are other things that we disagree, God will show you. I trust that. But hear this. Have the same mindset as me. Pursue the prize, knowing Christ in all his fullness. Have your eyes fixed on heaven. Let's turn now to a second question. Where are we to look? Paul has already been clear in calling the Philippians to think like him. To think like him because that will shape their behavior, how they act. They are to have the same mindset as him. Now Paul explicitly calls them to follow his example. Look at verse 17. Join together in following my example. He says, be imitators of me. Now the idea of imitating a teacher to, had precedent for Paul in his Jewish heritage. Pupils would not simply learn information in a classroom but they would learn hands-on, putting into practice. Uh, think, think of uh, apprenticeships in the trades. You, you can apprentice yourself to a journeyman electrician or a journeyman plumber or, or various other trades. That means that you begin to go to school for a few weeks, but most of your time is spent working alongside that journeyman, that master electrician, that, that person who has, has been fully trained, who has worked for years, who knows so much, and they pass that knowledge on to you as you work with your hands. That's the idea here of this apprenticeship. Paul's saying, follow my example. Don't just hear what I'm saying, but, but follow my example. Imitate me. Paul has no desire to merely pass on information to fill their heads I think this is perhaps a really important thing for us to drill down on. I would suggest that one of the greatest weaknesses in the church in North America, in the, in the, in the West generally, is that we have largely adopted an academic mode, an academic model of discipleship. We, we fill our heads with information. We, we listen to sermons. You're doing it right now. I'm preaching one. We, we read books, some of us. We watch YouTube videos. We listen to other, other little clips. And, and we, we seek to fill our heads with information, with, with truth, with good things often. But, but if we're just filling our heads, are we just getting big heads? Are, are, we, are we applying it? Are we being shaped by it? Are we living it out? Jeff Vanderstelt says what the church needs today is probably less Bible study and more Bible application. We need to apply the things we already know. We need to learn to live out the truths of God's Word. And so if we just have this academic model of discipleship where we're just taking in and our heads are getting bigger and we're not actually living it out. Paul, Paul doesn't want that. He says, follow my example. Imitate me. Be my apprentice. Walk with me. Learn from me how to pursue Christ, how to live for Christ with your eyes fixed on that heavenly goal. But he says more. It's not only his example that we are to follow. Look with me how the text continues. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Isn't that interesting? Paul's not saying, hey, just look at me, the teacher. Look at me, the one who's writing this letter to you. Follow my... No, he says, and, and look, at, look around you at other believers. Follow the example of others who are living as we do. 
those who are applying, who are living this life with your eyes fixed on Christ, knowing with this mindset that, that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth, that everything else is rubbish, that I forget what's behind, that I press forward, I go hard after knowing Jesus and living in light of who I am and what destiny awaits me, knowing him in all fullness. Follow the example of other believers around you who are doing that. It's not just Paul there to follow, but others. There is this tremendous flavor of, of Christian community in this passage. I don't know if you noticed, quick little, sorry, I don't want to bore you with grammar, but, but look with me, verse 15, Paul says, all of us then, first person plural pronoun, all of us, Paul includes himself with the Philippians. This is what all of us are supposed to do. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. First person plural pronoun again. He includes himself again. He, he is saying, I'm with you in this. This is a life we live together. Let's strive as we should together. Let, let, let's be who we're called to be together. Let's journey together. He tells them, to look at him, to follow his example, but also to look to others who are living like him, pursuing Jesus. The Christian life, a life of discipleship, is not a life to be lived individualistically. We need to hear that in our culture. Now, that said, it is a life we enter into as individuals. Every single one of us has to, for ourselves, come to that place where we recognize our deep need of God's grace, our inability to get right with God, and our deep need for what we can only receive from Him. Every one of us individually needs to repent of our sin. We turn from it and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my rebellion. That's something every one of us has to choose to do. And every one of us has to, to put our, our faith, our trust, our confidence in Jesus and receive His grace, His forgiveness, His gift of righteousness. But here's the reality. When we do that, when we, when we repent and believe, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we don't only enter into a relationship with Jesus, we enter into the community of his redeemed people. We become part of the body. And we are in this life together. And so this idea of living as Lone Ranger Christians is, is not biblical. Just a, a moment to, to, to speak to the reality of these last two years where online has been a, a normal and necessary thing at points. But here's the reality. There's lots of talk, at least I, I'm aware of this amongst pastors and church leaders. What, what, do, we, what do we do now? Do we, do we keep streaming? And you know what? Streaming has been a wonderful tool in many ways, right? It has is, it is made uh, gathering for worship accessible to some who can't come for various health reasons. Or, or other factors. It, it has been an entry point for some people who might be scared to actually show up in a building to check things out. There are some really good things, some good reasons why I want to keep doing it. But, but I want to say this too. If, if online church, it, it becomes this convenient thing, like, you know what, I like staying in my pajamas and just having coffee, and the best thing about it, I don't have to deal with people. I just want to say, no. That makes me want to pull a plug. That's not the goal. We're, we're in this life together. We, we need to journey together in, in so many ways, and, and we're not going to walk through that, but the Christian life is a life of necessity lived in community, lived together. Before we move on to the third question, we need to look at verses 18 and 19. 
Let me read them again. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul has called the Philippians to look to him and to others who live like him, and here he warns them about those who do otherwise, those who are living not as he does. And we're, we're likely confronted with a question or have the question come to our mind, like, uh, who, who are these people exactly? Who are these people that Paul is warning them about? And, and the reality is we don't know for certain, but there's a few things that we can say. Let me take a moment just to, to note what Paul says about them. He says that they live as enemies of the cross, that their destiny is destruction, that their God is their stomach, that their glory is in their shame, and that their minds are set on earthly things. Let, let's unpack those real quickly. To say they're enemies of the cross. The, the, the cross is at the very center of our faith. It is the cross, it is at the cross that Jesus died for our sin, to pay the penalty for, for us, that we might be made right with God. He bore what we deserved, and we're clothed with his righteousness. The cross is at the very center of our, our faith, of our redemption. The cross also is the shape of our lives. We suffer for the gospel. We suffer on behalf of Christ. Our lives as disciples of Jesus are cruciformed. Paul's been saying that. And so to say that these people are enemies of the cross says that they are rejecting the centrality of the cross. In redemption, in Christian discipleship, they're rejecting it. Their destiny is destruction. This speaks to the fact that these people are not redeemed by God. They remain under God's coming judgment. God, their God is their stomach. That would seem to suggest to us that they've given themselves over to their bodily desires, to their, their fleshly appetites. Those are what's ruling them. Their glory is in their shame. Simply saying that where they are glorying, what they're delighting in, should in fact cause them shame, but they've lost that sense. And now, lastly, their minds are set on earthly things. That's not just that they're thinking about earthly things. We all think about earthly things. We have to think about how to support ourselves or our family, how to earn a living, how to use that money responsibly, how to live in this world. We have to think about earthly things. That's not the problem here. But their minds are set upon earthly things. And that's an enormous difference. Paul has called them to set their minds on Christ, to pursue Christ, with, with this know, knowing that they are heaven-bound, that one day they will, they will receive the prize, knowing Christ in all its fullness. So these people, their mindset stands in opposition to what Paul has called them to, what Paul calls Christians to. Clearly, these people, whoever they are, are a foil. They stand in contrast to Paul and the Philippian believers and to all who would call themselves disciples of Jesus. And almost certainly, they are not just pagans living as pagan people. But I would contend that they are insiders, not insiders in the church in Philippi, but these are, these are men and women who profess that they are Christians. But their lives give evidence that they are no longer walking in the ways of the Lord, that They've stopped, they've wandered from the truth, they've stopped running. There's no pursuit of Christ. Their, their minds are set on earthly things. And Paul weeps. He weeps over this reality. And he, he, he mentions these people to the Philippians as, as a word of warning. That there is a pitfall, that, that they would lose 
this vigorous pursuit of Christ. And again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Paul knows and he has proclaimed that salvation comes freely by God's grace. God's grace then transforms us and, and there is to be a pursuing of Christ in all its fullness. Our lives are changed. And so where people are pursuing anything but Christ, their minds are set on earthly things, they are in fact living as enemies of the cross, he's saying. He reminds the Philippians so that they will keep their minds set on Christ and the future that is theirs in him, straining toward the goal, forgetting what is behind, pressing on to win the prize, knowing Jesus fully. Third, what does this mean for us? I want to think through the implications of this passage for us this morning. Christian discipleship, living as a follower of Jesus, necessarily is a life together. We follow Christ, not in isolation, but in community. And Paul makes that point several times here, right? That they were in this together, all of us. Only let, let all of us live up to what's attained. He includes himself with the Philippians and says, this is, this is the life that we're in together. But even furthermore, he, he calls them to follow his example. And he calls them to follow the example of others who are living as he does. Focusing on Christian brothers or sisters who are, perhaps we could say, a bit further ahead, a step ahead of where you are. This is not about putting anyone on a pedestal. This is not about anyone having it all together. I certainly don't have it all together. I continue to be a man in need of grace. I continue to pursue Christ. And so calling people to follow the example of others is not saying, look at me, I've got it all together. I'm hot stuff spiritually. No, there's no room for that. But it, it means that we can be helped by the example of others and that we are to live in relationship with others, looking to others, following after others, just as he invites them to follow himself. Not only means that we have our eyes up, that we follow the example of other brothers and sisters who are pursuing Christ, who are living the way we are called to live, that we can learn from them and follow them. But it also means that each one of us can be that example to someone else. And ask Krista to put a picture up on the screen in a moment here. This is a, a, a concept that Brother Jeremiah, who spoke last week, shared with me, and I love it. I think it's brilliant. It's coming. How many of you have ever seen a, a mother duck walking with ducklings uh, behind her? Some of us have. Imagine a picture of a duck. There we go. <laughs> we can look at that picture and we can say, oh, the mother duck's leading three little ducklings. Or we can look at that picture and say, the mother duckling is leading the duckling behind her. And that duckling is leading the duckling behind him or her. And the next duckling is leading the duckling at the end of the picture. There might be more. What I'm saying is that every one of us has a role to play in the body. That no matter where you're at spiritually, you can set an example for someone who's one step behind you. There is a responsibility that we have as believers in the church. We're, we're called into, body, in, into, into Christ's body to love one another, to serve one another, to pour ourselves out for one another. And, and I, thank you, you can get rid of the picture. Not only do we keep our eyes on others who can help us, but, but we need to see who we can help along the way. So let me ask you this, who, who are you following? Who, who 
are the believers in your world, whether they're in our church or whether they're people you read or hear about elsewhere, or who are you watching? Whose example are you following? And, and who are you inviting to follow your example? And that can be intimidating to say, follow me as I follow Christ, but that's, that's what Paul does. He, he's not saying, look at me, I'm, I'm it. He, he's saying, follow me because I'm pursuing Christ with everything I've got. And not only me, but follow others who are living the way I am. What would it look like for us to be a community, a church, where that is our reality, where we are, we are deeply engaged with one another, following after and inviting others to follow us? Church where that kind of discipleship, duckling discipleship we can call it, is happening. I would contend that in the church today, and perhaps in many of our lives today, one of the problems that I see is that many of us have lots of Christian friends, but we don't have lots of Christian friendships. And the distinction I make is we, we have friends that are like us Christians, but we don't actually engage spiritually. We, we don't engage in those deep conversations. We don't confess sin. We don't share struggles. We don't pray for one another. We don't encourage one another along. We don't talk about what Christ is calling us to. We, we, we love Jesus and we enjoy hanging out, but... What would it look like to say, we want to pursue Christ? We want, to, we want to forget about everything that's behind us. We want to press on towards the goal because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. What would it look like for us as a community, for every one of us as those who put our faith in Jesus to say, I, I, want, to, I want to do this. I want to think like Paul. I, I, I want to keep my eyes on, on people like Paul, on others around me. I, I want to do this. I want to, I want to live this way. I want to pour myself out for Christ and the pursuit of Christ. Christian discipleship means keeping our eyes fixed on heaven, fixed on Jesus, the one whom we will know fully one day when he returns. C.S. Lewis writes, Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. There are so many distractions. There are so many things pulling for our attention. Paul speaks these words to a church much like us. And he says, think like me. Follow my example. Let's, let's get busy running after Christ. Not, not in some way to secure ourselves, our acceptance. That, that was achieved at the cross, but but as those who are his, as those who are found in Christ, this is the life we're called to. So let's pursue, let's run, and let's do that together. We need one another. We are called to this life not as a bunch of loners, individuals, but together, learning from one another, helping one another, following after one another, inviting others to follow after us. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He he says, stick with me, friends. Stick together. We need one another. So brothers and sisters, I want to say this to you today. Let's run together, pursuing the prize of knowing Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your gift of redemption, Jesus, that is given to us freely because of your abundant grace. And I pray, Jesus, for any here who do not know you, who do not know yet, don't recognize 
your great love for them, your great grace offered to them. I pray even this morning, Lord, that you might touch hearts. And for those of us who do know you, Jesus, I pray that you would give us renewed vision to pursue you, but to do that in community, to do that with one another, to follow after others from whom we can learn and benefit, and to invite others to follow after us as we all follow you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.